Hey y'all, this is your host, Elise Robinson, with Nobody Wants to Work Though podcast. I hope these stories will inspire you to switch careers. I was an auditor in my past life, and now I'm in tech. And let's get to it. We are Switch Into Tech, tech resources to accelerate your career in information technology. Monthly classes on tech topics. We offer free or discounted exam vouchers, scholarships, free Udemy courses, free events, free boot camps, and more. You can find us at www.switchintotech.org. Hey, y'all, this is Elise Robinson with Nobody Wants to Work Though podcast. And today we have Sarah. Sarah, uh, what was your first career and what did you transition to? Wow. So my first career, I was a bank teller at a credit union. Uh, that was many, many moons ago. <laughs> I might say years. Uh, and today I am a user experience researcher in tech uh, and pretty much at um, a lead or principal level. Um so I had a lot of career transitions in my journey and in my path. Uh, I the, the first job I had, uh, as I mentioned, I was 18 years old at that time. I had no idea what I wanted to do or what I wanted to be. Uh, I just think I landed into that position because I was good at math in school uh, and just uh, thought that this would be a, a field or um, a job that I could that I could do. Um, I, I I think I worked that job for a uh, for a few years actually, uh, and I actually well, or with that company for a few years, and then I moved into their uh, loan application processing department. Uh, and then I was actually recruited by the Federal Reserve Bank uh, and by one of their um, branches in my hometown of Richmond, Virginia. And there I was working in a new department that was taking over back office operations for the U.S. Treasury. It was really uh, very early stages of uh, this was circa Y2K. Uh, so it was very early stages of uh, what we would call digital transformation today, but it was basically uh, taking um, taking the operations of looking at fraudulently cashed social security checks, uh, tax uh, refund checks, anything that was issued by the um, U.S. Department of Treasury, uh, and trying to image those checks as you know digitally Im image them, but also digitally match the signatures uh, to what was on record. Uh, and this is how a lot of fraud in the early days was, was being um, captured, uh, was saying, oh, this signature doesn't match. Uh, and there were some really interesting uh, cases to see both the fraud as well as the counterfeits. This was also capturing uh, counterfeit um, things. So I worked with the Federal Reserve for five years on this uh, on this team. Uh, it was a small but mighty team because we handled over $50 million of uh, U.S. Treasury uh, check processing. 
uh, and actually caught a lot of the fraud and uh, counterfeit in the process. But um, the counterfeit was really, I mean, the fraud part was also mind blowing because there were some places in the world, like in the Philippines, where you had World War II veterans that were receiving checks for their service and a thumbprint or fingerprint was being used uh, to sign. Uh, and that was acceptable. And, but then, you know, in some of those cases, it was like, this person is like over a hundred years old now, how can they still be alive to still be receiving this? So in those cases, the secret service actually got involved. And in one place, they tracked down a, um, a, a beneficiary or a recipient uh, who had actually passed away many years prior, but his wife had actually, you know, severed his thumb, put it in a jar of formaldehyde and had been using his thumb uh, for many years to cash those checks. Uh, like we're talking like 15 years because when the secret service went to that village and they asked around, uh, where can we find this person's house? Many people didn't know who they were talking about. And the few people who did were like, oh man, this guy's been dead for many, many years. Uh, so it, it was, it was quite fascinating. Oh my uh, gosh. I want to, I want to interrupt because I don't want you to get in trouble. You can, you can tell the story, right? Because I know how the government is. <laughs> Yes, I can. I can tell okay. this. It, it was, it was, it was actually told to me by the Secret Service. So, um, so I'm sure it's it's fine to share, but it's it was interesting. So, I think the reason I tell this story was this is really where my interest in human behavior probably started to take hold. Uh, from from there, I you know I would at the time I was. Put, putting myself through uh, my bachelor's degree and do it working full time during the day and going to the business school at night, um, getting a bachelor's in economics. Um, but I decided that I didn't want to pursue a, a graduate degree in economic theory um, and because I wanted to see economics in action. So I focused on um, I focused on urban and regional planning with a sub-focus on economic development. Uh, but as I was doing my graduate degree in urban and regional planning, I realized halfway through this 48 credit program that there was no way in hell I was going to ever go work in local government um, and sit through zoning, planning, committee meetings, and things of that nature. I was just like, this is not my tribe. This is not like what I'm going to do. Uh, but I had a love for research, so I supplemented that um, that coursework in that program with uh, a postgrad in applied social research, where I studied uh, quantitative and qualitative uh, research methods. And instead of doing a capstone project on like neighborhood redevelopment or some sort of planning project, I wanted to do a master's thesis. And my master's thesis is what took me abroad um, because I was really focused on how does how economic development um, activities and initiatives uh, and projects were um, being utilized to help empower low-income and disadvantaged women. Women's empowerment uh, was something that was very strong, uh, that I strongly held. I was an activist in college. Um, and so this was this 
was one of the um one of the 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 areas that I, I worked on in my activism. And so I chose to do a thesis on um looking at how sm the SB a small business administration SBA utilizes uh women's business centers uh and its programming uh, of microfinance to help low-income first-generation women, uh, women from a variety of backgrounds, to become self-sufficient and become economically uh, empowered. And I compared it to, uh, I did a comparative study with India, uh, which was the world's largest market for microfinance at the time of my research and my study. And they had all, all shades of microfinance from very from commercialized microfinance that had its own microfinance institutions and regulated banking to grassroots activities uh, that were basically you know villagers coming together putting their money in a pot on a monthly basis and kind of rotating it amongst their different households and community members for use on a monthly basis so uh, I, I, I was just, I'm, I would say if there's one word that describes me and that's explore, I'm always looking to explore and find out what are the common, uh, things that bring us together in the world? What are the similarities? And I thought, okay, this is really interesting because we're doing similar initiatives, but we're in an autonomous society here in the U S. Um, and, but then in the collective society, it's also very large, uh, you know, very large economy, very large uh, country in India, um, and also uh, quite diverse in its population. Um, they're also instituting microfinance, but in different ways. So I didn't want to look at the actual financial mechanisms and study that because it had already been well, well established. I was looking more at the people behavior, more at the motivations, the values, the strategies, and uh, the practices of those change makers in the middle who help facilitate and administer ver these various programs. So I looked at um, a rural women's federation in Northern India that was kind of uh, supporting and facilitating more of a grassroots uh, kind of uh, microfinance uh, 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 way of uh, getting money into the hands of um, of, of the rural women there. And, and, and then I was looking at a women's business center in Northern Virginia, um, metropolitan Northern Virginia. And what I found in my research was that networking on both sides was their central practice. Uh, and it was all about how do we get women connected? Um, and and the practices and the values and the strategies, despite being two completely different worlds, um, if you look on it externally, uh, were very much the same. And uh, it was it was very interesting. So from there, it it kind of kick started my career in research. Um, it, I graduated at the time of the economic collapse in 2008. Uh, so the, um, I didn't come from a background of international development in terms of I didn't graduate from a prestigious university like John Hopkins School of 
uh, international affairs and studies. Uh, I didn't have that kind of background, but I knew that I wanted to go into international development. And I knew that research was really where I wanted to hone my expertise or really where I wanted to build my career. Um, so I ended up going back to India and working with the nonprofit or the NGO that I had studied from my master's thesis. Uh, and, and that's really where I got a foothold because I just said, you know what, I'm just gonna put myself into the, in the locality and into the environment of where I want to be and just go and do it and make it happen. Um, and it was, it was great that, uh, the NGO or what we call here in the U S nonprofit, So, okay, sorry about that. You could have kept talking. I was just like, oh, keep talking, keep talking. <laughs> oh, oh, sorry, sorry. Yeah, so it was, it was, it was great that uh, I was able, I had that opportunity to go back and work with um, this NGO, what we call nonprofits here in the U.S., um, to continue to support some of the uh, initiatives and programming work that they had, uh, that I had you know, helped support them or got engaged with when I was doing my master's thesis research. Uh, and then I, from there, um, I, I needed to, it, it, it was a great opportunity to just get in, get back into the country. Uh, but I, I knew that I wanted to move on to bigger opportunities. So then I found myself working with a consulting firm uh, that is India and Indian based uh, in the domain of microfinance. Um, but once I got into the consulting firm and I got into the commercial side of microfinance, I realized that there, there was actually a lot of corruption in that field. Um, it was not at the grassroots level, but it was more at, as you got into the, the higher, uh, more commercialized side of things, um, and it just didn't sit well with my values, uh, like charging 30% interest rates on a monthly basis. Uh, it was, it was pretty, it was pretty tough to swallow. Um, there was very little in the way of education, uh, for the consumers of these microfinance loans. Um, and it, it, it was, and so I decided uh, I'm not going to focus on microfinance, but I still have these amazing skills on research and I still want to do, I still want to put my efforts into something that's going to bring about change in the world. Um, so from there, I did pivot into the international development sector and I was able to work. Uh, I got a contract. I was living in New Delhi at the time and I got a contract with the United Nations to develop a, um, an evaluation tool for measuring women's empowerment um, uh, and changes of women's empowerment through their programming. Uh, so the United Nations had a lot of programs focused on um, enhancing women's empowerment, but the 
the term and the definition of women's empowerment was pretty ambiguous depending upon who you spoke with, the, the agency, the background that they had, and the program that they're working on. Uh, this definition, uh, the definition of it really varied. Uh, and for me, it was like, well, how about we talk about the, the people who you are trying to empower? Like, what are, how do they, you know, what do they define empowerment as? What's most important to them? And let's measure empowerment based on their definition. Uh, and so that's, uh, that's what I did is I went out and I did research among domestic workers. Uh, I did research with um, unionized iron uh, or brass workers in Muradabad. I did research uh, with uh, porters, uh, people who carry your belongings in the, um, the uh, tourist town of Shimla uh, in the Punjab. So it, it was quite interesting research. But what I really loved about it was looking at giving power back to the people and not saying, you know, we're an agency and here's here's how we are going to define your experience or how we think you should be uh, defining your life as in terms of these development goals. Uh, and so I developed this I developed this evaluative tool for them. Uh, it, it, it helped to actually quantify uh, what empowerment is and quantify it based on the definition of what was most important to uh, to low income women. Uh, which was for them, it was eye opening because I also measured it against what their partners and what men in their their lives considered as women's empowerment. Uh, for women, uh, empowerment really came back to social standing and social prestige. Um, a little bit had to do with material things such as um, having their own house, but that's those the community uh, aspect of it of empowerment was really important to them. On the other side, though, men thought that as long as my partner has a home, uh, as long as I'm providing her with a home, then she's empowered. Um, but this is not how women defined empowerment. And so that was really, really interesting. Um, but it was it was a consulting project and I wrapped it up. Uh, and that tool went on to be uh, implemented and used by the United Nations in Bangladesh and other countries. Um, and I moved on to um, Pakistan. So I went to and moved from uh, New Delhi to Islamabad. And there I continued to do some consulting and work with think tanks and NGOs um, and uh, in, in Islamabad. And then I... Uh, then from there, I met my partner, uh, um, and we he he got an opportunity to work with uh, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and the WHO in northern Nigeria on um, some public health initiatives, and I moved there, and I also provided some support and research on. Um, on it, you know helping rural communities adopt uh, vaccines and vaccinations, um, what what was what were effective social social mobilization methods and so forth. In 2015, I decided that uh, that part of my life of living abroad and moving about, which had been a bit over seven years, um, that it was time for me to come back to the United States. Um, it was it, quite an experience to live abroad and uh, work in these various countries. 
I also had in the meantime done some assignments in Jordan in terms of uh, monitoring and evaluation of um, international development programs uh, in Jordan and in the West Bank. Uh, but I became a mom and I decided that I needed to provide a little bit more stability in terms of the, uh, you know, where I was going to raise a child uh, in terms of ensuring that we had access to electricity and water at all times and things of that nature. And so um, decided to come back to the States and settle back into Northern Virginia. Uh, and I, I was working in uh, another nonprofit uh, outside of DC in the international development sector. And I just realized that the policies of that take place and that are crafted and drafted uh, in the windows of Washington didn't match with the ground truth or the ground reality of the the places that I had worked in and the communities that I had served and been a part of and had lived among. And uh, I just realized that this is this is a field this is no longer for me. Um, you know, what I'm seeing in the DC and the discussions and uh, you know, the policy um, negotiations uh, just absolutely does not match the needs and um, the, the reality of so many uh, people's lived experiences that these are supposed to positively impact. And I, and I looked across, I really, at that point in time, it was like 2016, and I had, I would say, a very I had a career breakdown. Like I just went through months of anguish and frustration and discontent and and discouragement. Uh, and I was really just trying to figure out what am I going to do with my life? Like if there's like the, you know, those movies of the midlife crisis of the woman on the floor crying uh, and just like completely like having a breakdown. That was my, that was, for, that was me in the summer of 2016, uh, just spinning my wheels and figuring out what I was going to do. But um, what happened, I did have a breakthrough and the inspiration came from looking at photos of Syrian refugees uh, because I had done some work with Syrian refugees in terms of um, monitoring and evaluating some of the um, some of the aid and um, services that they were receiving in Lebanon um, and ensuring that that emergency aid and relief was being properly distributed. But looking at photos and realizing that all of them had cell phones, every single a Syrian refugee had a cell phone. And I realized that this is where change in the world is coming from, um, that it wasn't coming through governments. It wasn't coming through policymakers. People were empowering themselves and becoming empowered through the smartphone. And that they literally only had to have that smartphone to escape uh, the, um, to escape what they were experiencing, the, the tragic uh, in, uh, injustice and the, the tragic, um, you know, war that they were, that was being excised on them by their own government in Syria. Um, they literally could just open their phone, have access to underground routes um, being shared by other refugees that, that showcase on a map 
different border check posts, showcasing the map of where they could get water. They had WhatsApp to stay in communication with their friends and family. Um, they could, you know, access to their scriptures, to their, uh, you know, for for spiritual inspiration and support. They had access to, the, there were local governments in Germany that were providing their own apps in terms of uh, showcasing both in Arabic and in the German language. Um, the services, if you immigrate here, here's how we can get you uh, the support and, and, and so forth that you need. I was just, I was blown away by this revelation. I was just surprised. I was just like, this is the technology is the way of the future of, if you want to support change in the world, it's going to be through technology and technology is what's empowering people um, in their lives. And so I said, this is where I'm going to shift my career. Um, I took a very hard route to transition and pivot into tech. Um, I actually took a course on UX design. And in the first part of the course, it was through one of these um, boot camps. And the first part of the course was focusing on what's a problem that needs to be solved? What's a problem that you experience and are relating to that needs to be solved and go out and research it? Well, I got the research part down. Like I, I'm, I'm a UX, I mean, I, I, was a, I had those research skills honed, uh, but I became impassioned with the problem that I focused on, which was finding and securing and maintaining reliable childcare. Because at the time I was a single parent and um, and I wanted to, um, and it was difficult to find and get, maintain reliable, personalized childcare. Um, and so I decided, I just kind of became enthralled in that, solving that problem. And I actually ended up bootstrapping and starting up my own startup. Uh, I, I established a platform to connect parents and expecting parents to fully vetted nannies uh, that and it included what made it different from other platforms in the market was that it was full service. Like you, you could see fully vetted candidates. You could see their background and criminal record history checks, uh, driving record uh, were available. Uh, it wasn't something that was, um, you know, put on the, uh, parents who were trying to take advantage of that service for them to go and pay for an extra service. This was all included and it was all part of the vetting process of candidates prior to them even getting showcased or profiled on the platform. It also featured, um, you know, an opportunity for uh, the, the nanny candidates to negotiate their, their offers directly on the platform. Uh, and, and in addition to that, it brought transparency in the form of a suggested market salary range. So uh, as we see coming about now uh, with companies um, in, by state laws posting, suggesting that, you know, um, you know, whether it's New York, California, Washington, all saying that you need to post the salary range. Um, I've been doing this in 2016 with my own platform uh, of saying, based on the, you know, location, the, you know, so many different factors that we, that I had discovered in my research with parents and with uh, personalized child care providers, um, what those factors were, what was the average rate and uh, or range based on those factors. I 
could uh, work with data scientists to create this algorithm, uh, the suggested market salary range algorithm on the platform to really fully bring about pay transparency and really also to empower, uh, you know, those offering their services on the platform to negotiate. And so um, I did this, uh, built this platform um, it, it, with a small team between 2016 and 2018, uh, but realized that um, I I realized that it, this this wasn't a business that I wanted to stay in long term. I think it was great experience for me to get the tech uh, experience uh, dealing. It was it's when you are a tech startup founder, it's a roller coaster. Uh, really, really is. And it's one day you're putting out fire because the firewall has been, you know, hacked um, and you have to like get up to speed with what does that mean? What are the solutions and, and what are your op options for that? And who do you work with as a host, whether it's AWS or some 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 other uh, service? Uh, what's 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 the pros and cons there to, you know, marketing and, and everything. So uh, it was quite an experience. And then, you know, from there, I, you know, went to work with uh, a, an intelligence startup or a startup in the intelligence space in Washington, D.C., um, which was really interesting to go from uh, your users being um, child care providers to those being um, intelligence agents <laughs> or analysts. Uh, for for the U.S. government and other gov other allied governments around the world, um, but it was really interesting because it was just like you know these are trusted assets. Like what? How do we how do we help with that? And it, there wasn't it, 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 it in terms of the emotions and what people um, valued and 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 how much they put into it. It, it it's the same as how much you put into taking care of your child, right? You want the best. Uh, and you, so how do you establish that trust? How do you maintain that trust? Um, and how do you ensure, get people the best information to make the best decisions in their in their work? Uh, and so these are the interesting that I was able to make those, the connections between different worlds um, and make that transition. Um, so I worked with this, uh, worked with this, uh, startup for a little bit of time and then the pandemic hit <laughs> and um, it you know there was an adverse experience and um, I had to you know transition and at and that company I was a product manager which was kind of similar to being a startup founder meaning that product managers are fully responsible for um, the whole you know ensuring that the uh, experience is something that's defined and then it gets developed and then it gets launched. I realized in reflection that I, in this period of the early days of the pandemic, that I just didn't want to be doing the, be the person wearing a hundred hats at one time. Um, and I wanted to go back to my roots of what I really, really loved and what I really enjoyed and focus on a strength uh, and so my strengths have always been research. And so this is where I again made another career pivot. And this time it was into user experience research. Um, and so I pivoted into uh, UX research. And since that pivot, I have worked with um, as a UX researcher for um, 
Facebook now called Meta. Uh, they have their own internal incubator. Uh, and I worked on um, a number of, of mobile app experiences that were um, that were being incubated. Uh, and then most recently, uh, I worked with Microsoft. Uh, again, this was also in new product development, um, where I, you know, worked across a portfolio of experiences. And this one was really interesting because this one brought me kind of full circle back to my degree in urban and regional planning because it was focused on the digital overlay of physical experiences. So think of uh, it's what was called smart campus. And you can think of like smart cities, smart campus. These are all experiences where you incorporating a digital overlay, whether it's AR navigation or uh, kiosk uh, to, you know, in a, in a physical, uh, it might be hybrid meeting rooms in a corporate environment. So um, all of this, you know, came full circle with that. And so I, I led the UX research road mapping and research activities across the portfolio of those experiences. Um, and so that's been my career journey. It's been um, interesting. I've had a lot of transitions and pivots, um, but I think the thread um, when I discuss it with people is is that I've oh the thread is explore, exploration uh, and trying to find the connection between um, people uh, and I think this is what technology is technology just serves as the medium the people have always been there and they will always be there but it's how do we harness that technology to bring those connections um, help them bring them to fruition and and help them help each other meet our goals and, and our needs and our aspirations. So yeah. Gotcha. I mean, you pretty much answered all my questions. <laughs> um last question would be um, what are some tips and tricks or um, you know, type of guidance that you can give someone that wants to, you know, go into eh, I can't talk anymore. <laughs> going to changing their career? Oh, wow. Um, I think the the first tip and trick, uh, as, as you've probably heard from other people, um, is, you know, talk to people who are already in the career, you know, um, figure out whether it's for you first and foremost, understand what are the challenges, understand what what they love about it, what they like about it, understand what's what's the skill set that they use the most uh, in the career. Um, I don't think there's a perfect career for any, there's, there's no such thing as perfect careers, perfect jobs. So be sure to get like, what is the ugly side of it? Like there's, there's a lot of, um, like there's a lot of careers that are glamorized, whether it's entrepreneurship, um, even in the field of UX, but then when you get into it, you know, we have a lot of, um, you know, common challenges that we face. Um, you know, uh, I can produce research and I can have product managers and other stakeholders that will wholeheartedly ignore it. Um, and so you will face the, you will face, have those experiences in your career. So are you ready 
to accept that and have and have to to deal with that. Um, you know, in the career of UX research, for example, um, we aren't a new field, but we aren't as well established um, as say product management. So sometimes in a lot of companies, UX researchers are not reporting to another UX research uh, professional. They are reporting to a designer or design manager who may have never done or worked in research. Um, are you ready for that? Will you be able to advocate and evangelize or socialize what UX research is in that experience? Um, so there's trade-offs for everything. And so I think one in terms of doing that career transition is to really widely meet as many people as you can um, to get, you know, the pros, the cons, the good, the bad, the ugly, um, the challenges and the, the joys of it. So that's the first tip that I would suggest. Uh, another tip Um in my field, it's best to get experience by doing some projects. Um, and, you know, that is is also going to let you know whether this is really a career for you or not. Uh, we do have a Slack channel called UX Rescue, where it matches aspiring and, you know, junior or um, early UX uh, designers and researchers to nonprofits and other um, organizations that typically do not have the budget uh, for this type of uh, expertise. Um, and, and you'll get a project, whether it's a, a website redevelopment or um, working on an app or, or, or and coming up with designs for it and so forth. Um, so get that experience. Um, and and you need to start building your portfolio in that way. So, so those are a couple of tips specifically in, in my field that I would suggest. Gotcha. You heard it from Sarah. Um, where can we find you, Sarah? Uh, you can find me on LinkedIn, uh, Sarah Duke, S-A-R-A-D-U-K-E. Um, so linkedin.com backslash I-N backslash Sarah Duke. And where can we find the UX uh, rescue group? Uh, it's a Slack group. So Oh, it's a Slack group. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, do you have a link or, um, cause I, I can post that in the, um, in, on the video. Oh, let me see if yeah. I can get you. Um, other than that, uh, thank you so much, Sarah, for, um, coming on to the channel. Nobody wants to work though podcasts and, uh, thank you for listening and subscribing if you haven't already and, uh, we'll see you next time. All right. Fabulous. Thanks, Elise. Thanks for having me on today. Take care.